nursing care for children who have neurological disorders. I will begin with meningitis, which is one of the biggest condition um, when it comes to neural disorders. Meningitis is an inflammation of the cerebrospinal fluid, the CSF, and the meninges. So both get infected. There is an inflammation of the both area, which are the tissues that connect and cover the brain and the spinal cord. That's about the meninges. So the meninges is the membrane that covers the brain and the spinal the, the brain. And uh, the CSF, it is the fluid that provides lubrication for those covering to keep it moist and keep it um, liquidated at every point to provide better growth and tissues maintenance for those areas of the body, which are very important to our existence. Um, we'll talk about Ray syndrome under here also, and we'll compare it with, to what we have in the Sanders. And uh, Ray syndrome is one of those life-threatening disorders that involves acute encephalopathy and fatty changes of our liver. So sometimes when we have liver conditions, liver conditions come with complications. One of those complications is encephalopathy. So we can have Ray's syndrome if it is not treated. Uh, it becomes life-threatening when the child has liver, uh, when, when the child has uh, acute encephalopathy and liver changes, and, and, and liver changes wherein there will be built up of fatty acid within the liver. Um, both meningitis and Ray's syndrome have similar symptoms, and that's why we are going to group the two of them and talk about them. So meningitis and Ray's syndrome, they have similar characteristics, um, and they are both sometimes, they are preceded by viral infection. So one might have a viral infection. After the viral infection can come in meningitis or other Ray's syndrome. And that's why we'll talk about the both of them at the same time. Now, the testing is necessary to differentiate a Ray's syndrome condition from a meningitis. And that's the reason why when we have one of these two conditions, they are very similar in characteristics. We have to come in and do those tests that will differentiate a Ray's syndrome from meningitis. And in the endless, we are responsible to know the differentiating factors or those characteristics that differentiate Ray syndrome from meningitis. And when you are reading the materials, conditions in the endless material that look alike. And with those conditions, we want to point out, we want to remember the differentiating factors that will show the difference between the two conditions. That should be one of our points of interest when we are reading the endless. With meningitis, there are two kinds of meningitis under pediatrics. You have the viral meningitis, and you have um, you have the bacterial meningitis, bacterial and the viral meningitis. Now, the viral meningitis is what we call the aseptic meningitis. It is not 
the one that is very dangerous is aseptic. It is not dangerous compared to the viral meningitis. Um, sorry, com 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 compared to the, to the bacterial meningitis. So the viral meningitis is called aseptic meningitis, while the bacteria is called aseptic meningitis. Let's remember this term with these different conditions. Now, what makes the bacteria to be more deadly, to be more important to know much about is how contagious it is. The bacteria is more contagious compared to the viral meningitis. And uh, the bacteria prognosis depends on how early we diagnose the condition. If the bacterial meningitis is diagnosed sooner, we stand a better chance of surviving the condition. If it is diagnosed at a later period of the infection, it is difficult to have a good prognosis. That's why it is good to note these signs and symptoms to be able to look at them and be able to put in the best mechanism to prevent its extension or its complication. The viral meningitis does not require much. It requires supportive care. So in front of the viral meningitis, I'm going to put here supportive care. Supportive care for viral, viral meningitis. That means if someone has fever, we get the antipyretic. If they are vomiting, they are throwing out, in a sense, we give them antiemetics. So we treat the viral meningitis as symptomatic treatment. What is presented to us is what we're going to treat for the viral meningitis. For the bacteria, it is more severe. We treat it aggressively with antibiotics. Now, for the viral meningitis, it comes in after a lot of different viral illnesses. It could be the cytomegalovirus infection. It could be mumps infection. It could be the, 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 the herpes simplex viral infection. It could be the arbor viral infection. After one of those infections, um, when it is treated, the end result could be a complication that will come in to be a viral meningitis. For the bacterial meningitis also, it comes in after bacterial infection. Like when there is a necessary meningitis infection or meningococcal infection of the body, after that infection, we might have a complication that might come in as a bacterial meningitis. Uh, or it could even be like sometimes the child has pneumonia. After pneumonia treatment, the child might have bacterial pneumonia, the child might have viral or bacterial meningitis. So this condition comes in after either a viral infection or a bacterial infection. What is important here is for us to be able to know um, the findings when we have meningitis. And these findings are important to know because in the endless we are tasked to knowing these different types. Now, uh, and this, 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 these symptoms of meningitis, um, we look at it with age range for pediatrics. In the newborns, um, there are Generally, let's look at the general symptoms of meningitis. The general symptoms of meningitis include one, there will be what? Photophobia. So one who has meningitis, whether it's viral or bacteria, they're going to have photophobia. That's one. Um, so that means if they are in the room and uh, we are treating them, we have to put up the light. They will have photophobia. That's one uh, characteristic. They're going to have nausea. 
they will be nauseated, they will vomit in there. And one of the characteristics is also they are going to have irritability. For the kids, they will have irritability and they will have headache. Now, these are the general characteristics of meningitis as a whole. Um, when we do physical assessment, there are things that we're going to find out with these individuals at different age range. And that's why I want us to look at the various age ranges with different characteristics, different symptoms, and different cardinal signs. Cardinal signs of an illness are those symptoms that we can see and differentiate from other conditions that become the cardinal signs. One condition might have different symptoms. But the cardinal symptoms are those who now we can see they are the defining feature of that illness. So for newborns, when you when you have newborn who have meningitis, um, at birth they they are going to present very very normal without any symptoms. When a newborn has meningitis at birth, they're not going to be born with symptoms. They will be asymptomatic. They will progress being asymptomatic for a few days. After a few days, then we'll sort of have them having various symptoms. Now, the first thing of a newborn is poor feeding. Now, every condition a newborn has, this the begin with poor feeding. So you're going to have poor feedings in newborn at the first time of meningitis. You're going to have poor muscle tones. Their muscle tones will become very poor. poor. They will have weak cry. They will suck their food or the breast milk very poorly. Um, they're going to have, um, they will refuse to eat. They will have diarrhea. They will have vomiting. And they can have fever or hypothermia. So they're going to have hype, or they're going to have hypothermia for the newborn. So they will have hypothermia when they ask, when they start to present uh, with the symptoms of meningitis, they're going to have hypothermia among other conditions. So they will have low body temperature. Instead of having fever, they're going to have low body temperature for, for newborns who have meningitis. Let's understand that. Um, their neck is suffering with all their neck. So uh, one of the conditions we're going to, the symptom we're going to find is nocca rigidity. So nocca rigidity is one of the symptoms we're going to see in most of the age range for meningitis. But for the newborn, they will not have that stiff, that stiff neck. Their neck will be very supple. Uh, 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 their neck will not be strong. They will not be able to hold up their neck. When you stand up, when you sit them up, they will, their, their, their hair will be lagging behind. That's what's going to happen for the newborn. So you do not expect to have a newborn with meningitis to show nocca rigidity as a cardinal sign. They're not going to have that. So in the anklet, if you have a neonate, who is presented or who is presenting with meningitis, not carried yet is one is it's not will not be among the symptoms that they're gonna show for neonates. So if you saw that they have not carried, it should not be an answer because they will not have that at birth when they have meningitis. And fever also will not be at the beginning. Uh but as 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 they grow with days, they're gonna have fever. They will have fever and they might have possible hypothermia um they're going to have bulging frontal nerve now honor for the newborn they will have 
Paul Jane Fontanelle, which is a late symptom. So when you read down the symptom of meningitis for neonate, when you put down bulging from you want to put a head of it, put an asterisk to it, and you say this is a late finding, late finding for the condition meningitis for neonate. So when you begin to see that the fucking neon is bulging, it is a late symptom for meningitis when the neonate has the condition. Now we want to understand for this condition what are the earliest signs and symptoms and what are the late signs and symptoms because the that might ask out for either the late symptoms or the early symptoms. Then at three months to two years, three months to two years, guess what's gonna happen in three months to in three months to two years? In three months to two years, there are different funds that are gonna come out. Three months to two years. Um, they've passed the age of newborns. They are not newborns anymore. Then they are in the infancy period. So this become the infant from birth to two, from birth to two, two to three months is neonatal period. From three months to one year is referred to as the infancy period. So for an infant, the enclave will use these technologies for various age range, and you have to understand what. This uh, uh these terms mean when it comes to the ankles. For this for this group, they're gonna have seizure. That's one. That's the one. Of the first thing they're gonna have. On that head, they'll have seizure. Now we did not see seizure for three more uh, for neonate. There was no seizure. They would not have seizure in unit. They're gonna have seizure in infancy. Seizure is one of the signs they're gonna have in there. Um, they're gonna have over high pitch cry they will have seizure of a high pitch cry their voice will be so sharp when they are crying you will hear the sharpness in their voice their voice will be little but it will be very sharp when they are crying like they are they are moaning they are struggling to cry and they will have seizure while they are going through that for the for the for the infant they're going to have fever and they're going to have irritability there will be fever for them there will be fever and there will be irritability on or here for the neonate uh, for the infant. They're going to have bulging for the neon. Now, in this situation, there will there will be bulging for the neon, but in here it is not the it is not a late sign. For the infant, they will have bulging frontal Frontanel, but it is not. A, it's a normal sound for infants. In neonate, it is a late sign that when it, when they start to have a bulging frontanel, that becomes a late sign of the condition. Um, for these individuals, they're going to have possible possible knocker rigidity, meaning their neck might be stiff, or sometimes they might not have a stiff neck. So stiff neck, it is not a defining feature or a defining characteristic for meningitis for a kid who is in infancy. It is not a symptom. It is not a symptom for kids who are in the state of neonate. For babies from zero to three months, knockout is not a symptom. Between three months to one to, to two years, it could be present but it is not one of those cardinal signs for infancy they're going to have vomiting um 
under here, there are two signs. There are two signs for meningitis. One is the Kirtney sign. The Kirtney is one sign, and one is the Bronziski, the Bronziski, the Bronziski sign. Now, for infants, these two signs, even if the even if the infant is showing these two signs, we cannot use these two signs to define or to diagnose meningitis for, for infants. It is not a defining characteristic for infants with meningitis. Now, then that ends the infant sign symptom. Then we look at two years and above. Two years to adolescence. Now, let's see what's happening in here. Two years and above um, to adolescence. In here, let's see what are the major symptoms on here. They're going to have seizure. They will have seizure on here. Um, and seizure in this stage, it is a defining characteristic for kids above two years. So seizure, one um, they can have seizure here. So seizure is a defining characteristic for them under here. Seizure. So they will have seizure here. Yes, so when, when a kid at this age having seizure, what comes to our mind? We look at possible meningitis because at this stage, when they have seizure, yes, they could have meningitis, but it is not in the state of infancy and in the stage of neonate. Now, they're going to have in here they are going to have nocturnal regenerator. When they have nocturnal regenerator under here, we can depend on this symptom and say, yes, they are having seizure because under this stage, this symptom is a defining characteristic for meningitis. They could have um, positive Bronziski and Kragnin sign. So they could have positive Bronziski and Kirkney signs on here um in this situation it is a defining characteristic for this condition for meningitis in the stage between two years to adolescence so when they have seizure not regenerative positive Kirkney and Brzezinski signs they are enough to diagnose meningitis in the case of the age range from two years to adolescence other than this age range, we cannot use any one of these to diagnose meningitis because they would not be real. They would not be supportive of our diagnosis or, or, or of our impressions. Uh, they're going to have, um, now, when there is pregnant sign, there will be resistance of extension to the child's legs from a, from a flex position. So pregnant sign, this pregnant sign, Remember, Kirkney sign, the 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 the, the child legs cannot be extended. They will have a flexed leg, so their legs are flexed. In the case of Kirkney sign, if we extend the legs, they will bend their neck. Their their legs cannot be extended freely. There will be a resistance when you try to extend their legs. That is, they are having positive Kirkney sign. Now, for the Bronziski sign. It says facial exposure will occur with facial of the child's neck. So, so, um, so, so, so for for Bronziski, when you extend their their legs, 
they will bend their neck. For Courtney, their legs will not be extended. For Bronziski, when you extend the legs, the neck will flex. So meaning you cannot flex the neck, uh, sorry, you cannot extend the neck and at the same time extend the legs. That means they are having Bronziski sound to be positive. So let's remember these two signs and know exactly how can we interpret when a child has this con this condition and we try to do the positive Bronziski and the positive Kegney sign. They're going to have fever, they're going to have chills, they'll, they'll be irritable, they'll, um, they'll have drowsiness, they'll, be del they'll have delirium, they'll have stupor, or they'll be stupor, they'll be confused. These are things that are going, that are going to happen to the age range between two years to adolescence, to 16, 17. Now, um, they're going to have some rashes on their body, rare rashes when they have meningitis, and they're also going to be, in the, the, there will be joint pains and other things. There will be chronic ear drainage when they have this condition because of the CSF that is infected. These are signs, it's not the signs it's not they're going to have on or here. Now, when we talk about meningitis, um, when you look in the Sundas book, in the Sundas book for meningitis, we have a very good description in the Sundas book, but uh, it did not in the Sundas it, 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 it did not specify for us the age range and their symptoms, and that's why I went in depth to look at the very age range. So those differentiating factors between a newborn, which is neonate, from birth to three months from three months to two years, from two years to 17 years of age, you need to pay serious attention to those differentiation. What about for those who go for our end class? Look at those things and know exactly. Because in the end class, we have the most common symptom. When you talk about meningitis, we talk about what? Nocturnal rigidity, we talk about seizure, we talk about Brzezinski and Kirkney's sound. Those are the three most common symptoms we're gonna see uh, for this for this condition. In the end class, hey, we've passed that stage. As an as an RN, the state that the English will give you a question about those three symptoms, it is now it, it, we've passed that stage. We should be thinking on something more critical compared to those three signs and symptoms in meningitis. That's why we have to go in depth to do more analysis about this condition when we are doing comparison. Now you look at it in here. Um, you, 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 you look at these various signs, the Kirkney signs, the Brzezinski signs, know what they are from the Sundas book. Look at the intervention. Now, in the case of the intervention, before coming to the intervention, let's look at um, what can we do. Because in both the viral meningitis and the, and the, and the bacterial meningitis, there are two things happening, happening in there. There might be different characteristics of these conditions, of these two different conditions under meningitis. So we will look at those two characteristics. Let's compare um, our lab draw. When we have a lab to be done, when we have viral and bacterial meningitis. Let's look at the differences between the two. Viral meningitis versus bacterial meningitis. Let's look at the comparison. Now, in the viral type of meningitis, um, we'll do some larger tests. And this lab test will do will be the CSF. The cerebrospinal fluid will analyze the CSF in viral meningitis and will analyze it in bacterial meningitis. How do they how it appears 
in both conditions. Now, in the environment that is when we we'll do the CSF, we we'll, we'll do a draw of the cerebrospinal fluid, here it will be very clear. So there is a clear CSF in the environment that is in the bacteria, it, it is very clouded. It is clouded in bacteria. So when a kid has a bacterial meningitis and we do the CSF, it will, be, it will look clear in the case of meningitis. In the case of bacteria, it will be very clouded in appearance. Um, in bacterial meningitis, we we'll always have um, WBC here will be elevated in bacterial meningitis and in viral it might be normal or it might be slightly elevated, slightly or normal, slightly elevated in viral meningitis for the web blood cells. In the bacterial meningitis, we'll have the protein is elevated. Protein in here will be high in bacterial meningitis. There'll be elevated protein. So we'll have hyperproteinemia. In bacterial meningitis, in the CSF, when we do the CSF draw, um, there will be normal or it will, it will be normal here. There will be normal protein or again, it will be slightly elevated in the case of protein for viral meningitis. If we go ahead and compare the blood sugar glucose content, in the in the viral in, in the viral will have normal blood glucose it will be normal glucose content in the viral and there will be elevated glucose in bacterial meningitis now in grain stain there's going to be a positive grain stain so grain stain grain stain is the test we do in the lab to know what is the what what's causing the condition. If a, if a grain stain is done in bacteria, it will be reactive, meaning it is positive grain stain in bacteria uh, in, in, in bacterial meningitis, and there will be negative grain stain in uh, environment meningitis. So it's negative in viral, it's positive in bacteria. Now we have to understand that uh, in the bacteria, everything is elevated. In the viral, everything is either normal or slightly elevated. So we have to understand the difference, the difference between uh, viral meningitis in terms of laboratory testing and bacteria in terms of the same testing. Now, we can do all other tests to diagnose the condition. Apart from the CSF, we can do a lumbar puncture to collect the CSF. This procedure, lumbar puncture, it is one of those procedures I want to make sure to know how we do a lumbar puncture. So we can do a lumbar, lumbar puncture on our here. Now, this is, this is the most definitive diagnostic procedure when a kid is, 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 is is, is, is showing symptoms of meningitis. So the most defining feature test or the most defining characteristic test for meningitis is the lumbar puncture. So other tests we might assume 
and other tests might be positive for this condition and in other condition it might share it, it might still show reactivity what is here is important is when the child has meningitis the most important test is the lumbar puncture in the end they will ask you a child has the following condition the doctor is impressed to diagnose the child to have meningitis which laboratory procedure can give us a definitive result of what the child has and in this condition we are looking for the test that is done to diagnose meningitis and that test is the lumbar puncture so in the lumbar puncture um there are two areas we insert the needle out of between l3 lumbar vertebra 3 to l4 or between l4 to l5 are the two areas we insert the needle to 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 to, to, to afterwards the cerebrospinal fluid to test it for whether it is meningitis or other condition l3 and l4 now I'm sorry, between L3, L4, and L5, and L4, and L5. Now, we want to measure the cerebrospinal fluid pressure and collect the CFF for analysis. There are two reasons why we are doing, we are collecting the fluid. One, to measure the CSF pressure. That's one. Two, to do CSF analysis. Remember what the proteins, how clear it is, whether it has increased the WBC. Those are things we want to analyze for this of the CSF. Now, the lumbar puncture will ask the client to enter the bladder, the patient. If they cannot enter the bladder by themselves, will pass NG will pass a character to enter the bladder. But the bladder needs to be empty before we can do a lumbar puncture. Now, we will assist the doctor with the procedure. This procedure does not require general lab anesthesia. We will give an EMLA, E-M-L-A. Remember, we did anesthesia, anesthetic agent, we talk about EMLA, E-M-L-A. We'll do an EMLA. EMLA is what we refer to as a, uh, is a cream we use to, to apply topically, to just insert a needle to pull out what we want to pull out in the, in the laboratory testing procedure. Now, we will use the MLA. It will be applied over the biopsy area for at least for the five minutes to one hour. So we apply this cream. The cream will create numbness. It is an anesthesia, but it is a topical anesthetic agent. So it is applied for 45 minutes up to one hour before the procedure can be done to provide numbness. That's the function of the MLA cream we use before the procedure. Now, under here, we will also place the baby in a side line position with the head flexed and the knees are drawn upward to the chest and assist the doctor in making this position. So it's like the child will be folded. The child will lie either on the left or the right side and they will flex their knees upward towards the chest and they will bring down their head, giving us access to the lumbar vertebra. Because we want to have a child like this. This is the child here. The child comes like this. The legs are flexed up and they're in the so, so we want to have access 
to this L3 to L5 area. So we're going to have to the L3, L4, and L5 because the needle goes between either L3 and L4 or between L4 and L5. That's why we want to have it in this position to have access to the lumbar vertebra to go in and pull out the fluid, which is, which is the CSF in there. That's the function. Now, in this situation, the child can be sedated with other metazolam, metazolam, or fentanyl. So the child will be sedated, these are sedatives, with other metazolam or the fentanyl to put a child asleep while we do the procedure. Now, in this condition, in this procedure also, we'll cleanse um, the skin and inject the local anesthetic agents. The doctor will take pressure reading and collect three to five test tubes of CSF. Meaning the test tubes are those little cap, those little tubes that look like finger, those finger-sized tubes where we put the blood in. So the doctor will collect three or five of those tubes filled with the CSF to test it for the CSF pressure and also analyze the CSF. That's the function. We, uh, that's what we do when we collect the CSF from that LT or, L, or L5 position. Now, we'll label the specimen, the child's name, date of birth, the, record, the, the, the medical number is recorded on the test tube and it is sent to the laboratory immediately. Um, we'll monitor the site for bleeding, hematoma, and also for infection. After the procedure, we'll monitor the, the, side, of the, the side of the needle for bleeding, hematoma, and infection. Now, then we can also um, do a scan. We might do a CT scan or MRI in this condition. Um, the CT scan or MRI is done to monitor whether the child is having increased intracranial pressure. Because when, when you have meningitis, you can have possibly you can possibly have increased intracranial pressure. ICP can be can be present. So we'll, we'll do a scan. The scan will tell whether we are having ICP or not. Um, we can administer, administer sedative for the patient. These are things we do for the babies. Um, now, then we look at the treatment. The treatment it is important after all these tests and we have diagnosed that the child has meningitis. What is the intervention? Now, let's look at the intervention from the stimulus book and compare to what we have in our other materials. In our Sundas, it tells us for the intervention, we want to provide respiratory precaution for the child who has um, this condition. Why? Because this condition could be contagious through the, the, the respiratory tract. So we want to provide uh, precaution want to provide one respiratory precaution for up to 24 hours after we initiate the treatment for antibiotics. It is in our student's book. Provide uh, 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 respiratory isolation precautions and maintain it for at least 24 hours after we have initiated antibiotic treatment for meningitis. Most often for bacterial meningitis. So when a child starts uh, the antibiotic treatment,
it has the child needs to be in isolation for 24 hours before the condition cannot be contagious this is a possible endless question now also in our sunders it tells us um want to administer antibiotics and antipyretics medications as prescribed want to also administer anti-seizure medication as prescribed so for this condition we are going to pro provide antipyretic for fever antibiotics for the bacterial infection and want to provide for the baby for the for the infant or baby or whosoever having this condition uh anti-seizure medication because they are having seizure in this situation now we also want to make sure uh we perform neurological assessment we want to assess the patient neurological status where, where we look at everything about neurology that is that include their nerve what are they, uh, what are they are moving their body parts what are they are having a uh, strength in their palm what are their eyes the pupils are dilated or they are constricted we look at all these all these neurological domains to make sure they are within the range of a good neurological status we have to do that we will also have to go ahead and uh perform this 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 assessment we assess for complication of inappropriate anti-diuretic hormone secretion. When a child has meningitis, they can have inappropriate anti-diuretic hormone problem. So we want to assess whether they are having that. Meaning, what are they, what, because when, when they have inappropriate problem, they might either be having fluid secretion, which will increase, which we're going to have fluid overload in their body. Because when you have it, when you have SIADH problem, you have fluid con contraction in your body. You have increased fluid volume in your body due to due to the inappropriateness of the anti-diuretic hormones. You're gonna have that. We also want to go in and assess and look at the level of conscious uh, the the level of of, of, of the, the, the the LOC level of consciousness. Whether they are alight, whether they are conscious, whether they are semi-conscious, whether they are lethargic, whether they are stupor. We have to look at all these will fall in the neurological assessment. And when they are having inappropriate anti-diuretic problems, they're going to be having hyponatremia. Because the more our body secretes fluid, fluid is not letting go, the more diluted our sodium will be in our body. So, so, so when they are having this problem, they are going to be having uh, 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 hyponatremia in this situation. Um, then we want to go ahead and also assess to know where they are having their nutritional status. We monitor for um, those rackets on the body. I talk about rackets on the body when they are having meningitis. One of the symptoms, they will have those rare rackets on their body. We assess for those rashes. We also assess for irritability. We assess for signs of thromboembola. They might have thromboembolism. So we assess for thromboemboli in the case of meningitis. We assess for all these things because these are things that might cause the complications in uh, in the uh, in the illness. We also want to make sure 
look at the charts intake and output because by seeing the intake and output we can determine that the chart is having uh adh problem and that diuretic problem they can have because if they are not passing urine they are not passing off fluid they are just withholding fluid that is the possible sense of what adh problem um we, we can give vaccines and also look out look out for hearing loss we can give vaccines which is recommended for children who are at risk children who begin who begin from two years who are starting from two years and above we can give vaccines to prevent meningitis in those kids there are vaccines for meningitis for children who are above two years of age there are vaccines so these are things that these are things um uh we talk about in the case of uh in the case of uh meningitis in the sanders now specifically when it comes to medication wise we will give one we'll give antibiotics we'll give antibiotics and they should start as soon as we get the note about the condition we must start to administer antibiotics after it is diagnosed to prevent spreading to other to, to, to other people within the with, within our area we begin with iv antibiotic treatments the length of the therapy is determined by the child condition and by how infected the CSF is. So it depends. A child might have meningitis, they might do three days, seven days of treatment. Some might do 14 days. It depends on how infected the child is. That's how the treatment can be extended. Um, we'll, we'll look at also the blood glucose level and other things. We give supportive care to the mother and the, to the family and that of the, and, and that of the child. We'll also provide, provide a child with corticosteroids. Corticosteroids um, can also be administered in a case of meningitis. For the corticosteroids, they are only for, for bacterial meningitis. They are not for viral meningitis. They are for bacteria only. They are not for viral meningitis. Um, they will, will assess with initial management of the increased intracranial pressure. That's the function of this corticosteroids. So the corticosteroid will assess with the ICP. That's one. It will assess um, with other other things about breathing, other things. But it is not a long term treatment. When you give for long term, it has its own side effects or adverse effects. So we do not want to give corticosteroid for long term. It's a short term treatment to Help to decrease the swelling in the brain. That's why it is for. Um, whenever we are providing this condition, we make sure we assess for how good or how effective, effective the, the medication is. Assess for it. We can also give analgesic or under or, or antipyretic. We give analgesic to patients who have these conditions. Um, it can be given for the pain or to relieve discomfort. We can give acetaminophen that contain codeine. Acetaminophen with codeine in it, with codeine. And we know what codeine is, right? We give acetaminophen with codeine on our analgesic to help them with discomfort and also quality. Um, now, once we are getting codeine, codeine is a narcotics. Once we are getting codeine with under with with under medication codeines or narcotics they have the ability to, to suppress 
our respiratory system in the brain. So when we are providing in the mechanism to, to a patient, we want to monitor that patient breath rate. It is not only for this condition. Every time you administer any form of narcotics, narcotics have the ability to suppress the breathing in the brain. So for that reason, we must monitor the breath rate for all narcotics products. We'll go ahead and provide education and other things. So when, after the condition, the child might have complication, complication which is the increased intracranial pressure, which is a complication. This could lead to a complete neuro disorder or, or neuro shutdown. If the child has meningitis and we treat it and the child is trying to, to the, the child has a complication of increased intracranial pressure, it might lead to a complete shutdown of the brain system, of the entire brain. So when we ever have that risk, there are things we need to do. One of those things is, um, first of all, let's, let's look at the symptoms of ICP for newborns and other children that are above uh, three months. For the newborns, when they have ICP, increased intracranial pressure, they are going to have one bulging frontal nail. They will have a bulging frontal nail that is stains. They will have that. That's one. They're going to have that. They're also going to have increased hair circumference. They will have increased hair circumference. They are also going to have um, high-pitched cry. They are going to have a uh, distended scalp vein. They will have distended scalp veins. They will have this. They will become irritable. Um, they will have irritability. They are also going to have bradycardia and they will have respiratory changes. They will have bradycardia and they will have respiratory changes in here. These are just the most definitive signs and symptoms of ICP, increased intracranial pressure for newborns. They will have this. So when a newborn has meningitis, our concern becomes the prevention of the complication, which is the increased intracranial pressure. And those concerns come with the symptoms, which include increased hair circumference, distended scalp veins, irritability, bradycardia, and respiratory depression or changes they're going to have that now the next thing that's going to happen let's look out for individuals who are children the children they're going to have increased irritability for children they are going to have um, nausea they will have vomiting children will have diplopia they're going to have one diplopia for the for the for the children these are for newborns these are for children, meaning from three, uh, let's say from two years up to adolescence. They will have diplopia. They are going to have seizure on here. They will have seizure. They are going to have bradycardia on here. They are going to have um, nausea. They will have vomiting. They will have irritability on here for children. Now, then look at the intervention. What is a child? Or is what is a neonate or is a, a an older child? The intervention remains the same for ICP complication. The intervention one will provide one is positioning. We we'll change the position 
to reduce the pressure on the child head will make sure the hair slangs downward to reduce the pressure on the child head. That's the first thing you want to do. To, uh, to, uh, I mean, like, the hair has to, like, go upward to reduce the pressure. Now, when there is coughing, because coughing will increase the ICP. So, want to prevent the child from coughing. We'll give cough medication to prevent them from coughing. We'll go in and uh, prevent them from straining. Because when they strain, it puts pressure on the brain. It will increase the ICP. We also reduce the lighting in the room because they will have they will have photophobia, which can also increase the severity of the condition. We want to also make sure we minimize the noise within the room because the noise will irritate them. It will stimulate them and they will have increased intracranial pressure. Those are things we will do for the children when they have ICP. Any question? So, Ray syndrome affect the liver and the brain. That's what I want also to remark for Ray syndrome. So, Ray syndrome affects both the liver and it affects the brain. Ray syndrome, the cause of Ray syndrome is not known, but uh, it is believed to um, be most prevalent during the period between January to March. So Ray syndrome period in the U.S. is between January to March of every year. That's when we have the highest incidence of Ray syndrome. Um, Ray syndrome, most often it comes after when a child has influenza, common cold. It comes after influenza. That's when the child will start to experience the symptoms of Ray syndrome. And um, most often it can be mistaken for other disorders like like uh, meningitis, encephalopathy, poisoning, sudden infant death syndrome, diabetes mellitus. And other psych illnesses that's how, those are the kind of conditions that we can mistaken Ray syndrome with um Ray syndrome the prognosis of Ray syndrome is best with early recognition and early treatment so if we recognize Ray syndrome very early and we are able to provide to initiate a treatment plan for it very early the child might have a better prognosis so that's what happening in the case of Ray syndrome. Um, Ray syndrome, from other sources, um, most often occurs when we administer aspirin or aspirin-containing medication. When we administer aspirin or any drug that contains aspirin or salicylate, salicylate, other aspirin contains salicylate. So anything that contains salicylate or, or, or aspirin itself, um, it is not to be given to children. And in most cases, when the children have influenza and we give them aspirin, the end result of aspirin administration can lead to Ray syndrome. That's why we don't give children aspirin because they might end up having Ray syndrome. Um, we diagnose it very early and begin a, a and begin an aggressive treatment, the child might have a better prognosis. Um, 
Most often, when a child, like I said, after a viral infection between four to seven days, that's when they, they sort of have the Ray syndrome. So, don't get remember those things about Ray syndrome. Now, the next thing we want to have in there is um, the next thing we want to have in there is the sudden symptom of Ray syndrome. So, the child becomes lethargic. The child become irritable, they become combative, they get confused, they have delirium, they have decreased level of consciousness. Those are things the child gonna have when you have racing. So just as someone can have seizure, they can have not carriagitated. So they're gonna have similar symptoms of meningitis. So that's why we need to do those laboratory tests to differentiate the racing from meningitis. That's what happening in there. Um, we'll do liver enzyme for Ray syndrome. We'll do for them liver enzyme test. The liver enzyme test. What are the liver enzyme tests? At this stage, we should know all our liver enzyme tests. The AST, the ALT, those are some the ALT, the AST, uh, those are all liver enzyme tests. And when you do the liver enzyme test in Ray syndrome, all of them they are elevated. They all will be elevated in the case of the en liver enzyme analysis. We can do for them the serum electrolytes. Um, there will be alter. We we'll do this. We we'll do for them serum electrolytes. Uh, these electrolytes in the body will be altered, and they are just altered due to due to cerebral edema and liver changes. So they all will be high. We can do the time of coagulation. Really We'll do blood clotting time to make sure that they know whether, whether they are normal or not. And in many cases, we'll have alteration in these things. We can do liver biopsy, um, which, will which will do the biopsy. The, the patient will be on MPO before the procedure, which we all know that. We can do also the CSF analysis for this condition. We'll still draw it from the L3 and L4 or between L4 and L5. The same procedure we did for um, meningitis. Um, patient will be provided with fluid to get hydrated. The patient will avoid them to be in extreme flexion, extreme extension, or rotation. They will avoid those positions when they are having Ray syndrome. We make sure we monitor the pain status and provide them pain medication and prevent any stimuli. That will cause them to have pains. We implement seizure precaution just as we implemented in the case of a meningitis because they are at risk of having seizures. So we we'll prevent the uh, uh, we we'll implement seizure pre uh, seizure precaution in this situation also. We we'll initiate referral support and also educate the family and provide support for the family. Um, we we'll give the medications. Many cases were given diuretics, specifically we're given osmotic diuretics. We gave them diuretics. We gave them the osmotic diuretic monitor. Osmotic diuretic. We gave them monitor in this situation. We also gave them uh, vitamin K to improve clotting. We gave them vitamin K to improve clotting. You have to know why these medications are given to improve the clotting. You might talk about we we'll do 
coagulation testing. So we'll do, we'll give vitamin K for coagulation testing. We'll give the monitor to decrease the intracranial pressure and the fluid in the brain to reduce it. That, that's, that's how we're mentioning that, 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 medication, that medication. We'll give other interpersonal support to the patient. They will do occupational and physical therapy. Um, in, this, in this situation, if they need to adapt to other things in their life, we'll also make sure the dietitian come in to provide dietary solution to what they are going through. Any question on Ray syndrome? Now, I will take a short look at disorder of seizure, different seizure disorders. It will be a very short look at it. This time around, I'm more concerned about seizure prevention and seizure management. So we have other audios in there about seizures. You can look on the other you'll see more detailed information about seizure. Now, seizures are just abnormal and excessive electrical discharges that occur in the brain. There are different kinds of seizures and there are different conditions that have seizure origin. Example of this condition, you have epilepsy, we have seizure origin. You have meningitis, sometimes it has seizure origin. You have different brain, like brain tumors, they're going to have seizure uh, symptoms coming in. So seizure, in a sense, it is not a specific condition. It is a symptom or a sign of other conditions occurring in the body. Now, um, seizure are classified according to their type and etiology. So we have generalized seizure and we have partial seizure. The brain has two hemispheres. When it is generalized, meaning the both sides of the brain, left and rest of the brain is affected, and there will be discharges occurring both left and in the left and right hemispheres. If it is partial, meaning it is just one side of the brain that is that is having discharges, so that side becomes affected, and the and the impact is not felt as much compared to a generalized seizure. Um. We cannot discuss seizure without talking about epilepsy. So, epilepsy is one of the seizure conditions that occur that occurs along the way. Um, now, under here, when there is seizure, there are so many things going to be happening. Um, there are risk factors for seizure disorders, and there are risk factors for epilepsy itself. So in epilepsy, you will have the, when there is trauma, when there is hemorrhage, when there is anoxia, when there is infection of the brain, when there is toxin in the body, when there is injury like uremia, migraine headache, even when there is cardiovascular problem, all those things can result into seizure, into ep, into seizure, seizure disorders. Now, there are kind of seizure. I'm going to go through them very fast, very swiftly. We have on a generalized seizure. Um, you have one. You have the tonic conic seizure. Tonic conic seizure. That's one. Two. You are going to have absent seizure. Absent seizure. Three. You are going to have um, the myoclonic seizure. Myoclonic seizure. Four, you are going to have the atonic seizure. 
eighth tonic or the eighth tonic seizure. That's where I'm going to stop with these seizures. We have our previous audio. Just call all these things one by one by one by one. But uh, the anglers is, will not be concerned about these kind of seizures, other things about them. Just look at it, what they are, how do they occur. That's it about, about them. Now, um, for the my, for the first one, which is the tonic the seizure, in this seizure, there is no warning sign. The onset comes without warning. Let's understand that for that for this tonic chronic uh, or seizure. In this seizure, it lasts for up to thirty seconds. There will be eyes rolling. All things happening. The eyes will roll. There will be tonic contraction of the body. The whole body will contract, and there will be at the same time there will be uh, jacking. So when you hear the word tonic chronic, there will be body contraction, and there will be jacket movement. So the word means there is contraction at the same time there will be jerking or jerking movement so in the first part of the seizure there will be contraction this lasts for 10 to 30 seconds and there will be a movement of jerking between 30 to 50 seconds that's what happened in here that's about total seizure let's remember that now the next one becomes the absence seizure in the absence seizure, it mostly occur with children between five to eight years of age. For this absence seizure, in the absence seizure, um, there is at least five to ten seconds loss of consciousness. Between five to ten seconds loss of consciousness, there will be loss of consciousness between five to ten seconds. Now they can be doing activities, and they will have a pause after ten seconds. They will regain consciousness and they will go ahead to complete or to resume the activity they were doing when they had a seizure. That's about absence seizure. Now, then uh, we have the myoclonic seizure. In the myoclonic seizure, they might have variety of different episodes of seizure within a short period of time. That include there might be a brief muscle contraction you see the muscle jacking they will have muscle jacking in this form for a few seconds and they will stop and they will regain activities that's what happened in my opinion or seizure in this seizure there is no post ictus stage meaning ictus stage is uh what comes the post is what comes after the seizure after the seizure though sometimes sometimes like for this first seizure this total seizure they will have post interface it lasts for about 30 minutes to two hours they will try to like regain their memory they will be quiet they will be weak they will have pains in their body but in the myoclonic seizure they do not have a post eater stage then the fourth one becomes the atonic seizure in the atonic seizure it's mostly between the age two to five years of age for in for for kids in this seizure they do not lose Consciousness, so they are conscious and doing what they are they are going through. Under here, they will be conscious and they will do now these things occur will occur. Here. But under here, they will lose their muscle tones. So they will lose muscle tones under here. They will be setting. They cannot. They do not have control over their muscle. So their muscle become flaccid. That's it for muscle for for myotonic seizure. Now. <clears throat> Then we have the partial seizure. 
for the partial seizure, there are two types under partial seizures. Um, you have um, the simple and the complex. Now, under here, this partial seizure, they have the third type. Let's look at the first two. The first two, the first two you have the simple partial seizure. The simple partial seizure with motor activities. With motor activities, someone will be the complex seizure. But this one has simple partial seizure with motor activities. And it also has simple partial without with well, sorry with sensory activities. So this is with motor activities. And you have number two under here to be simple partial seizure with sensory activities. That's why I said there are two types because basically we have the simple partial and the complex partial seizure. <clears throat> just know that, just know those types. Um, for the seizure, how do we diagnose seizure condition? It is my point of interest. Um. The first thing under here is to diagnose the seizure activities. Um, we want to make sure one, we can do MRI, we can do a CT scan, we can also do a lumbar point to diagnose seizure activities to, to, to do most of them about them. Now, what I'm, what, what, what I'm concerned about this time around is in, when there's a seizure, what do we do? When there's a seizure, the first thing is to protect the child. Or when a child is a known seizure patient or has a seizure history, we do not want to leave that child on a thing at any point in time. We always want to provide a safe environment for that child. Want to make sure to maintain a position to provide pitting airway if the seizure occurs. They should have a pitting airway where they can breathe in and breathe out safely. Now, um, want to prepare to suction in case they are having oral secretion a lot. We'll suction for to prevent aspiration of their saliva. Want to make sure we loosen recruiting clothing if they have a tight t shirt or tight jeans pants, tight like a necktie. Want to want to loosen those restrictive clothing they are wearing. We want to make sure we do not attempt to open their jaw or their mouth or that uh, from at any point in time we, we cannot do that. Those were all ideas about seizure management. About seizure management. This time around, we do not open the child's mouth when they are having seizures. We want to make sure we remove their glasses if they are wearing contact or other just uh, fashion glasses. They want to want to. We want to, try to, to remove them. We should remove them at all point in time. We should remove them and we should provide them O2 if the need arises. Because in seizure, the brain is being deprived from getting O2. And that's why the brain does not live without O2 for more than five minutes. And that's why in seizure condition, after five minutes of seizure, without seizing, we put in those precautions, those management. To prevent brain damage or brain death after five minutes. That's what I'll say. After five minutes, take the phone and call now one because at five minutes the seizure is still ongoing, meaning the brain is in problem. We're gonna take the phone and call emergency to come and get the patient.
Now, we want to make sure to remove the child at all point in time. Note the onset of the seizure. That's the first thing you do as a nurse or the patient. When patients start to have seizure, look at the time. The onset, look at the, the time. You look at the seizure characteristic. When now when they appear, they will ask you how long did the seizure last did the seizure last for? What how 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 what was the child formation? Were they having both tonicronic seizure? Uh, was there a contraction or was there a jacket movement? So they want to know because they want to know the character of the seizure. Whether the patient was having unitonic or they were having unitonic or they were having both tonicronic seizure. Those are things they want to know, they want to gather from you as the person who providing this information to the uh to to the emergency. Then uh want to maintain for the seizure after the seizure, want to maintain a saline position. It will be left lateral or right lateral for the patient. Want to check where they are breathing, check their vital signs, and check the position of the head. And check their mouth while they bit their tongue while they are bleeding. We help them the while to stop the bleeding. For that is the post this post seizure state. We want to assess for injuries. We want to perform a complete neuro check from head to toes to know whether they are okay. They are resumed full consciousness. We want to assess that. We want to make sure we want to reorient and calm them to the unit if they are in the hospital if they are home. You are in the hospital, you have to do a reorientation because after seizure, they will have loss of consciousness. So you, so you have to provide them reorientation. These are common anchors points. I want to make sure and focus on this point. You want to maintain seizure precautions, including the environment, remove furniture. Do not leave a seizure patient near a pool. Do not leave them near a fire hide. Or anywhere there is there is a hazard there is a hazard for for, for, for them to, to be harmed, you do not leave them around those area unattended. You want to make sure you want to check in their mouth, see their tongues, know the time of the post-eater period, remove the patient, do not offer them food or liquid or liquid until they have completely be uh, uh they resume full consciousness. That's when offer them anything by mouth. Other than that, you don't give them fluid, you don't give them food. You want to make sure they, what well, the patient experience aura, A-U-R-A. Aura is what happened to them last before they had a seizure or what they could remember as the, the specific changes that occur before the seizure came. Some people can have a transient headache before they had that seizure. That could be their aura. Some people will see a shining light flashes in their eyes. That could be their aura. Some people can have a nice smell or a nice odor before the aura, but before the seizure, that could be their aura. Some people will have different feelings in their body. Their body might feel different chill or other feelings. That could be their aura. You want to ask them, uh, what did you feel? Did you feel anything like aura coming over you? Like you felt like you, those are what they call the aura, like the feeling they're going to have last before they can experience the seizure episode. Want to make sure also, want to see what it is in a trigger. Whether they were stressed before they got a seizure, if we can, if there if they are triggers, 
They want to prevent those triggers from reoccurring. We want to make sure we document the onset, the duration of the seizure. Those are common things we want to do. Now, for the seizure, we want to call 911 or emergency medical service after five minutes. We want to make sure when a child stops breathing, you call 911. You want to make sure when the seizure lasts more than five minutes or when there is a status epidemicus, when there is a status um, epilepticus, you want to call 911. When also there is pupil, the pupils are not following following the seizure or they are not equal. After the seizure, the pupils are not equal. If they are not rounded, they are not equal, meaning that's why we said after every seizure, we do a full neuro check. Because if you do a full neuro check, a full neuro check call for Perla. P E R um, L A. Perla. The pupil, they are equal, they are rounded, they are reactive to light and accommodation. If this is not the case after a seizure, you have to call 911. The pupil, the pupil must be equal, they must be rounded, they must be reactive to light and accommodation. If this is not the case, you have to call 911. That's why we'll do a full neuro assessment and that Assessment requires to have a normal perla. Now, we also want to check whether the child is responsive. If the child is not responsive to, to pain, like sternum trust, rubbing the sternum, pinching them, pricking them with the uh, blood sugar uh, or tester, if they cannot respond to, to those painful stimuli, you have to call 911 after, after a seizure. Also, if the seizure occurred in water, they were in a swimming pool and they had a seizure in there, there might be fluid that got into the lungs. So you have to call 911. If the child, if this is the child's first seizure, you have to call 911. Because these are conditions that will require extensive testing. Like, 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 like this child has never had seizure history. They had their first seizure, it requires you to call 911. If it's a child first seizure, you cannot wait for five minutes. As soon as they start to have a seizure episode, you have to call 911. If the seizure occurs in, in the pool or in the water, they are, they are submerged in the water, you must call 911. If the seizure lasts more than five minutes, you have to call 911. If they are not breathing during the seizure, you have to call 911. These are all conditions that require us to call emergency when we are outside the hospital then we have to give those aed medications what are aed medications aeds are the anti-seizure drugs or the anti-epileptic drug, drugs aeds now this aed medication we've discussed before I'll, I'll look at them once more we talk about the diazepam the diazepines, they are benzo. Diazepines are benzo medication. We give benzo for seizure. We can also give them phenytone or dilantine for seizure. We can also give them uh, carbazepine, carbamazepine 
carbamazepine for seizures. We can also give them the vaporic acid, vaporic acid. We can also provide them um, the lamotrigine, lamotrigine. We can give them, uh, we can also give them the topiramid, topiramid. We can also give them, um, Another one is the phosphinate or uh, the phos the phosphinetone sodium, the phosphinetone phosphinetone sodium for seizure. These are all anti-seizure medication. Look at these medications. Look at them. Look at the common nourishment for these medications. If you look in your sanders after seizure at the back of that condition or seizure for adult patients, you see this medication and you see their most Common reactions, and that's why I tell people when you read these materials, you might not know everything about medication, but the most important drugs comes in the sun. Uh, they come in the sunders with every condition. So these are the most common medication for seizure disorders. Any question? For these drugs, they must be given every time, same day, at the same time, every day to prevent another seizure episode. Then. We look at other, other treatment for seizure. With our medication, some people are not responding to medication. They will do a procedure called VNS, Vigor Nerve Stimulation. They call it Vigor Nerve Stimulation. For the VNS, it is, uh, it is done under general anesthesia. So they're going to go in, they will plant, uh, a metal in the left chest wall of the patient. That metal um, is in there when there is a seizure episode that the patient cannot respond to medication. So they put a metal in there to re to to help patient to regain consciousness when they have seizure episode. So they'll have a little magnet in the left chest. They'll have another one outside. If they have seizure episode, you take the money, you, 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 you rub it two times over the chest, one or two times, and they will regain consciousness. Any question on, on this on this condition? Head injury is one of those conditions that fall under neurological problem. They fall under neurological problems. Um, you have concussions, you have contusion, you have laceration, you have fracture. All of those can be under head injury. Concussion is just a traumatic brain injury that alters the way the brain functions. So you have head injuries. Um, you have concussion. It's like your head got hit or you hit your head on something. And the hair went back and forth. This the, the pressure from the from that knocking of the hair it shakes the brain, and the brain lost its function at the point in time, or the function is altered. Contusion is a bruising injury that occurred to the head, and there is an edema of that area. Then 
laceration is a tearing injury that occur to any part of the body or to the head that will cause external bleeding. Um, then a fracture could be a linear, a depressed, or a comminuted, or a basilar uh, boom, loss of integrity. The boom will lose its integrity when there's a fracture. So the boom, that integrity of communication between bone cells will be missing when there's a bone fracture. That's what happened in this injury. Um, in head injury, it could be due to check. It could be there will be there will be a lot of consciousness in the case of head injury. When there is head injury, my concern becomes what can we do? What are the nursing care for head injury? That is my concern. Under head injury, you want to make sure you monitor the ICP. Um, that is the intracranial pressure because there will be increase in the ICP. And what's the, what's the normal ICP? Can, can anyone tell me the normal ICP? So the normal ICP is between 1 to 10. Is the expected range for the ICP. 1 to 10 millimeters per mercury. Now, um, when there is an increase in that, there is an increase in the intracranial pressure of the, of the brain. Now, uh, we do our laboratory tests. We do the arterial blood gases. We do the blood alcohol and toxicology screening. We do the CBC differential. We can do also liver function tests when there is head injury. What is important under here is... Um, we want to care we want to provide care when there is an extensive brain or traumatic injury to the brain we want to make sure we stabilize the spine those are the first thing is a head injury one you stabilize stabilize the spine the spine when there is a brain injury you do you do not want to keep this the spine mobile you want to immobilize the spine um, you want to make sure until there is a rule out spinal cord injury. If there's a rule out spinal cord injury, then we can start to move the spine or move the head. But until then, we do not want to move the spine because when there's a spinal cord injury, the more we move the spine, the more severe the injury becomes. We want to make sure we monitor the virus signs, level of consciousness. The pupil dilatation or pupil constriction, we monitor the ICP, we want to monitor motor activities, we want to monitor sensory perception, we want to monitor verbal responses, what a person is talking, what a person's words are cohesive, or they having delirium, or they having LOC at that point of the head injury. Those are those are things I want to find out whether they are real or not. We want to make sure we want to administer O2. If the, patient, if the patient is having low O2 saturation, anything below 90, it is low, meaning we have to give the patient O2 to make sure they have enough O2 saturation. We want to make sure the patient has a patent airway to keep breathing. We want to maintain, uh, if the patient is not breathing, we want to put in mechanical ventilation. Um, one of the measures I want to assess the fluid drain from the ear and the nose.
when they are having fluid coming from the ear and the nose, it could be CSF. Then we have to go in and do a test. This test will indicate why the person is having cerebral spinal leakage because the CSF will, will have glucose in it. If it's an if, if it's an ordinary fluid coming from the ear or the or the, or, or the nose, will not contain glucose. If it is from the head, the brain, or the CSF, it will contain glucose. Remember, talking about the CSF, we said in the case of bacterial infection, the CSF when we draw the CSF from the L3, L4, L4, L5, there will be increased glucose present in bacterial infection, and there might be normal or there might be slightly increase in glucose level of the CSF when we do when the client has viral meningitis. Now, we want to assess, um, we want to assess a lot of things and keep the patient in and implement action if they have increased intracranial pressure. And those actions will be the same action I talk about when we talk about when the client has ICP as a complication. Whether we, we avoid extreme flexion, we avoid extreme extension, will also avoid rotation of the head. We want to maintain immobility when the client is having ICP. We want to make sure we monitor the patient. If they're having fluid from the nose or from the ear, we do not want to suction a patient who was just involved into an accident and is having fluid drilling from the ear or from the nose. If you suction, you will keep some time pulling out the CSF from the patient's body until they will, they will go low on CSF, which is not good for the patient also. You want to make sure the patient should not cough, they should not strain, because when they cough the strain, it will put more stress on the, on, on the brain. It will also increase the cerebral, uh, it will also increase the intracranial pressure. You want to make sure we insert and maintain an indwelling urinary cavity because if they do, if we do not, if we do not put in catheterization, it will also put stress on the patient to, 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 to urinate, which will increase the ICP. Want to administer stool softening, like I said, because we do not want them to strain, to have constipation. If you are straining and you are having ICP, what happens? It also increases the pressure on the brain. We want to use another um, means to make them to feel as comfortable as possible. We we'll give TPN, total parental nutrition, when they are having ICP. Um, those are things we'll do. We'll give mannitol, like in the first situation. We'll also give antibiotic, just in case if there is a CSF leakage, or there is a laceration, or there was a penetrating injuries that the body got the the skin got or uh, the skin had a break in integrity bacteria or other macros might have entered our system so we give antibiotic to prevent or as a preventive treatment for that situation we can give analgesic meaning we give Tylenol to prevent fever or, the, or, the, or the reduce the pain in this in that in that in that situation we might do other procedures, like we might do a subdural drain, subdural drain to reduce the pressure. We can do that. We might do um, 
placement of what we call burr hole. We talked about this before. Placement of burr, B-U-R-R-H-O-L-E, burr hole. Look it up. To, uh, we might do that procedure, or we might do craniotomy. Craniotomy. We talked about this procedure also. Look up this procedure, and you know exactly what we're talking. We're, we're talking about here. For the craniotomy, it might be done for two reasons. We might do it to remove the part of the skull, to remove a part of the skull, or it can be done uh, to replace bone in the case of some other problems. Any question about about hair injury? Any question about hair injury? We look at cognitive and sensory impairments. It is not one condition. There are several conditions that make up the cognitive and sensory impairments in the pediatric neurological system. Sensory impairments in children most commonly affect the eyes and the ears. And uh, adequate vision and hearing are necessary for normal functioning, normal growth, and normal development. Without these sensitive uh, without these sensory normalities, we cannot function adequately. We cannot meet the criteria for growth and development. So we need these sensory, um, different sensory uh, normalities to make our life easier. So it is important to identify any impairment that life brings for us. So we look at Down syndrome. Um, which is also a common chromosomal abnormalities that affect uh, the child's growth and development and results in cognitive and sensory impairment. Because Down syndrome or autism or autistic conditions, those conditions affect our sensory, our sensory system. Um, someone who has a Down syndrome might not have good hearing, they might not hear well, they might not have good taste bulb, they might not have good eyesight, they might not have lot like good touch and other things. They might not be having. They might not have balance that might make them to be normal, like how others have those systems normal. So when you have these conditions, uh, these Down syndromes and other conditions, um, you are prone to having some cognitive and sensory impairments. So we look at these impairments. I will start with the visual impairment. Visual impairment. Now, in visual impairment, there are categories, there are different types of visual impairment. There are thousands of them. But we'll look at the most important one that the NCLEX wants us to know. Those ones include, um, we'll look at both partial and legal blindness. We'll look at uh, myopia, hyperopia. We'll look at astigmatism. We'll look at anisometropia. We look at amblyopia, strabismus, cataract, and we look at glaucoma. How do these conditions affect our eyesight? Now, um, for the visual impairments manifestation, I will start with the first one is myopia. The first one becomes myopia. So in every condition, I would want for us to define, to know exactly what is happening. How will the eyesight look at uh, things from distance? In myopia, 
it is referred to as nearsightedness. We get the word myopia. It simply means near sightedness. Near sightedness. That's what we call myopia. When someone says you are myopic, meaning you can't see further, meaning it's an insult to call someone, oh, you myopic human being, meaning your brain is limited. You, you do not think further. You do not think in a wide horizon. You think just in a, in a low scope. So when, so when you have a myopia, meaning your eyesight cannot see distance, you are someone who can see from just a short distance. So meaning you are myopic, meaning your eyesight cannot see from distance. So in myopia, you can see object very clearly that is closer to you. You see object that is, that is like, in, like in a short range, that becomes myopia. And uh, when someone has myopia, they're going to have headache, they will have vertigo, they will have bell ringing in their ear, they will have the ears will sort of make sounds. Like when you take other medication, like quinidine or, or, or lysic. So the ear, you have that autotoxic effect of the ear. You have that problem. Your eyes will be itchy. You will rub your eyes. You're going to have difficulty reading. And uh, when you walk a long distance, you will feel clumsy. You look, you feel clumsiness in, you have that feelings, uh, an object. And uh, you have poor school performance. So the kids will sort of perform bad at school because they cannot see the ball well. They cannot see their surrounding. They cannot see their books when their books are away from them. So they're going to start being myopic. Those are signs of myopia. Then the next one we have is hyperopia. Now, the opposite for myopia is hyperopia. Um, in hyperopia, it is wherein uh, we are having far sightedness, meaning we are seeing from long distance. It's called far sightedness, sightedness. So in hyperopia, you have the ability to see objects from far distances, but you cannot see them from close distance. So you can see someone coming from like 10, 15 feet or even so many yards away, you will see them and recognize them. When you look at the paper next to you, you cannot see what is what is on the paper. So you are, you take the paper away from your eyes like this when you are having hyperopia. Now, those who are myopic, they cannot see far. They're going to bring the paper to their eyes like this to look at the, 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 the writing to their eyes very close. That's how they see. And when you are hyperopic, you take the book away from your eyes to see. So that's, that's what happened here. And in hyperopia, um, you will see distant object clearly, but not the one that are closer. Because of accommodation, you will not detect this up to until seven years. So kids who have hyperopic conditions, they cannot detect this condition until they reach the age seven for hyperopia. Then we have another one called astigmatism. The third one is astigmatism. Astigmatism, it is an eye condition where we're going to have uneven vision, uneven vision. So in astigmatism, um, uneven vision in which only part of the bowl we can see. So like if someone has astigmatism, meaning this, this is the eye, half of this eyesight is blinded. So they cannot see this. The, Whole portion cannot they cannot see with it. So you see it like this. So if we are to see the, the writing on the bowl here when you have astigmatism, you will see half of this bowl. This whole side will be dark, 
you will see the wording on the left side, meaning you're having left sided astigmatism, you're having right sided astigmatism. So when you have the right sided one, you'll see writing from, from just one side or vice versa. That's what happened in the case of astigmatism. You are having uneven vision. The vision is not even, so you have that. You're also going to have uh, vertigo. You are going to have headache. You are going to have, um, you will still see normally, you will have normal vision. Because those who have this condition, they will, they will, um, they will lay their head on the side, so they will like uh, tilt their head to see object. So if you tilt the head, you can see the board, the entire board. But if you don't tilt the head, the hair remains in this uh, horizontal, uh, in this vertical position. You cannot see the whole board. So they will have normal vision, even if they're going for eye testing. They will have normal eyesight because they will always tilt their head to read. The letter from on the spelling chart, so they can do that. But in short, when you really look at their eyes, they are having problem because they cannot see the whole eyesight. So they just see half of the object that is being visualized in their uh, in their vision. So for these individuals who are having astigmatism, they're going to have headache and vertigo. These are these are the same uh, symptoms they're going to have, like in the case of a uh, myopia. But just about for them. They will have normal eye vision. They will have 20 or 20 visual equity tests when they do the VA testing. Then we have what we call anisometropia. Anisometropia, it is also another eye condition uh, in which there is different refractive strength in each eye. In the case of anisometropia, um, our eye strength, aniso metropia our eye strength another scene so we have different we have different eyes strength meaning uh, our left and right eyes will not have the same strength to open wide to see object to see to, 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 to see things within our environment in this situation uh there will be an there will be um different reflective strength in each eyes the patient will have headache and vertigo they will have excessive eye rubbing and they're going to have poor performance at school. So one eye will have a good strength, can see an object very clearly from distance with no problem, and the other eyes will not have the same strength the, 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 the bad eye has. But when they strain the both eyes, they are able to see an object from distance and they will see object clearly. But once the eye is not being strained, um, they're going to have Difficulty in one eye than the other eyes. In the case of anisometropia. Uh, now, in every eye condition, it is not how you, you, you all know that which eye condition presents with which eyesight or which vision. That's the case about these conditions. Then we have what we call amblyopia. In, in amblyopia, amblyopia, it's all called lazy eyes. So the eyes become lazy, and uh, you cannot, you'll see the eye like a, you have seen some individual, one eye lay is not lifting up, but it's just kind of a, almost like slightly close. Um, they will have re reduced visual equity in one eye. So you see then one eye is open like this, and the other is always, is always like this. So they have to open their two eyes with strength, before they can visualize things within their midst. But in normal circumstances, when they are normally sitting by themselves, you'll see one eye is open widely and the other is slightly open in this form. 
that's what we call the one that is not open wide is what we call the lazy eyes that is what we call the amblyopia now in this amblyopia um they're going to have reduced visual equity like i said so they're going to have lazy eyes they'll have reduced visual equity on here and then the next eye problem is what we call um strabismus strabismus is what we call the cross eye strabismus It's called cross eye, crossed eyes, strabismus. Now, in strabismus, they have two types. They have the isotropia and the exotropia. If they are outward, if the eyes are crossed outward, meaning, I'm um, sorry, they are out yeah, If they are outward crossing of the eye, meaning the two pupils of the eye is uh, opposite each other going towards the right side of the eye, Towards the outer canter of the eyes, they're gonna be what we call exo. That's what we call the exotropia. Exotropia. E X O. Exotropia. Um, it is the outward strabismus. Then the inward strabismus is what we call the exotropia. E S O. So we have E X X as in X-ray. E X O mean outward. E S O mean in war strabismus in the case of strabismus now in here there will be abnormal corneal light reflex or cover cover test there will be misalignment of the eyes so one eyes will be like looking at you and the other one is like looking on the other side but the two eyes are watching you but because of the eye division or the uh because of the um because of the misalignment of the eyes so you will feel like someone who has strabismus the left eye is the looking at you directly the left eye is slightly going looking outward but mind you the both eyes are like pointed at you directly that's what happened in strabismus sometimes in the worst case scenario the two eyes will have the two eyes cornea will be like in the middle of the eyes so in this case this is the worst one that's what happened but sometimes one is straight and the other is not straight. So sometimes, sometimes they can do surgery to correct this eye condition. In strabismus, sometimes the patient has to tilt their head to look at object or to see someone when they are talking, if it's bad. Um, they will have frowning. They will have, uh, they cannot see print clearly. So they will have to like strain their eyes to see printed objects in the case of strabismus. Um, for them, they can have headache, they can have dizziness, they can have di diplopia, blurred vision, they can have photophobia, and they can have crossed eyes. So in, in short, it's called crossed eyes, strabismus. Then we have catara. Now, catara is, um, is defined as opacity of the eyes. There is opacity of the eye, catara. There is an opacity of the eyes. Opacity of the eyes. It's all called a cataract. So in cataract, um, there's decrease ability to see clearly. The patient will have some dark, some, some cloudiness over the eyes. Now, for that reason, they cannot see object clearly. Their vision is not really, really clear. They might have these visual problems to see things from a very good point in the case of uh in the case of cataract. 
Now, you have to know in every eye condition what is the vision like in every eye condition. When there is glaucoma, how does one with glaucoma see object? If there is macular degeneration, how can you view object when you have a macular degeneration? Now, these are different eye conditions that we need to know and know exactly how do we visualize object. So in cataract, cataract can have nystagmus. When we have cataract can have nystagmus, they can also have strabismus. They can also have, um, we can also have absence of the rare reflex. This is a big one. In cataract, they're going to have absence of the rare reflex. That's why when the babies are born, we check for the rare reflex. And when there is absence of the rare reflex, it signifies an eye condition. In the newborn, when, the, when we have a newborn, we look out for the rare reflex. If we see the rare reflex is absent, it is an eye condition. That means it is not normal eyesight the patient has at birth. Um, so those are things we look at about cataract. Then we have glaucoma. Um, the if one is glaucoma, glaucoma is also another eye condition that comes in two different types. We have the close angle glaucoma and we have the open angle glaucoma. So we have uh, two types of glaucoma we did immersion search in adult medicine. Now we're looking at pediatrics. So under here, when one has glaucoma, they will have loss of peripheral vision. So you put infant glaucoma, you put loss of peripheral vision in glaucoma. That means um, the opposite of glaucoma is what we call macular degeneration. So when you have, so this is an object here. This is this, this is a ball. Now, if you have glaucoma, you can visualize the ball itself, but you wouldn't see what is around the ball. So this around here becomes the periphery that you cannot visualize when you have glaucoma. Now, in the case of macular degeneration, you can see the periphery. If this is a ball, we can see here. But we cannot see the ball itself. So this will be a dark spot. So in MD, there is a black spot in the middle of the object. So one who has glaucoma can see you coming towards him. They will see your body, but they cannot see what is around your body in glaucoma. Because glaucoma, there is no peripheral vision. In the case of macular degeneration, the one who has the condition will see you, uh, will see around you, but cannot see your face. Your face becomes like there's a dark object in your face that they cannot even see who's coming. They cannot recognize you by your face. In the case of uh, in the case of this uh, uh, macular de de uh, degeneration, that's what happening in this case. So we try to like uh, make sure we know the wording for every one of these conditions. And then in glaucoma, there is hollows around the objects. So you will see an object like this. A chair is here, there's a hollow around the chair because they cannot see what's around the chair well. So they will see the chair, but they cannot see, they will see like a hollow. Like how when you from sleeping at night, when you look at a light, a shiny light bulb, when you from sleeping, what happened? You see like something around the light. That's how we call the hollows. So they will see hollows around objects in the case of glaucoma. They will have photophobia in glaucoma. They're going to have red eyes. Their eyes will appear red in glaucoma and they're going to have their the eyes cornea will be will be lazy 
they will have cornea uh, it will be lazy it will be hazy and they will have enlargement of the eyeball which is called bothamus so they will have enlargement of the eyeball which is called bothamus in the case of a glaucoma so in this eye condition we have to know exactly <coughs> um, what are we looking at what are we looking at how do, do the eyes look at object when we have glaucoma that's what happening in very in this very eye condition any question down syndrome is the most common chromosomal abnormality of the generalized syndrome Trisomy 21 is seen in 97 percent of cases of down syndrome there are many different conditions that accompany this down syndrome conditions so it, it is not a one condition it is a branch of conditions that come together to call to be called down syndrome um when you have down syndrome there are so many different clinical symptoms that are going to come along sometimes there's going to be some suture of the head that is divided in down syndrome sometimes the child will have enlarged anterior frontal nail sometimes the child can have small rounded head they might have slanting eye eyeballs they might have small nose or like the bridge of the nose is not wide they might have all these different symptoms come in when you have down syndrome sometimes the kid might have a protruding abdomen sometimes they might have shutting the rib cage is short so you see from that shoulder toward that rib cage is very short sometimes they're gonna have um their neck is wide you see the wide neck like a bold neck sometimes they're gonna have epicantal folds sometimes they have uh they might have transverse palmar creases their palm will look different they might have it other way around when they have the palmar creases coming in it's not gonna have very short stature they might look very funny when you see them you might not know that they are you will see you know that they're having some abnormalities so now when they're eating they cannot eat well the, the food will drop from their mouth they will be drooling the whole while so there are a lot of things that can happen to know that someone has down syndrome and these down syndromes are conditions are so many so you always want to make sure you um, provide for the baby when the baby is born provide the best testing um for prenatals you got to test the alpha phytoprotein test to know whether they're having a risk of maternal serum so if it is high they might have neural tube defect if it is low they are risk for these down syndrome conditions um we can do chromosomal analysis we can do echocardiography to diagnose down syndrome when a, when the mother is pregnant um there are different nursing care we do not rock the baby so hard when they are born because that could cause them to have brain can, can have some problem um, we want to assist the family in feeling the feeling difficulties when they when they have Down syndrome because to feed them it becomes difficult. We want to make sure to, pr to promote good skin care when the baby has Down syndrome. We want to assess for developmental irregularities. We want to make sure to make a proper referral if we observe or we assess and diagnose any conditions. We have to make the proper referral.
to wherever they will get the best of cares that they're supposed to get. We have to assist the parents in holding and bounding with the infants. If they need surgical intervention, we have to provide those interventions to, um, to the family or to the baby. There can be other complications with this Down syndrome condition. There can be um, eye problem. <clears throat> there can be hearing loss. There can be different complications with, with kids who have Down syndrome. So sometimes they can have growth retardation where they are not growing with their age. You'll see a kid who is seven years still acting like they are one or two years. You see a Down syndrome kid who is thirteen years still buying toys that 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 a, a two year or three years old kid will use those toys. So it is all because of the condition, and they are not growing in line with the group and developmental chart for the pediatrics. These things happen to the babies and they grow in that condition. Any question on Down syndrome? 